There are some cardinal rules in movies that characters should always follow. Don't go into the jungle at night alone. Don't pick up hitchhikers. And if there's a legend about a giant monster, turn the other way and run. Luckily, no one in the movies ever listens to any of these rules. But fear not, listeners, because we're going to prove to you that despite all this rule-breaking, Anaconda is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, grades in B, movies. And I am super stoked about this show because we have a first-time guest joining us to dissect a movie that I'm not quite sure if I should like or not. Kind of do, kind of don't, not quite sure. Joining us for the first time from the Running Scare Jogcast, not podcast, but Jogcast, Robert Lendrum. Rob, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I am super excited to talk Anaconda with you. It's one of my favorite films, period. Now, you are very, very, very familiar with this movie. Mm -hmm. Why this film? Oh, man. So our podcast, it's a podcast and Jogcast. We do the Jogcast, which is about running and uh, listening to horror, that unique stuff we make. But podcast, we do review films. And the whole project started because we wanted to review Anaconda. We've been talking, me and my my co-host, Jamie Roberts, shout out to Jamie. We have been talking about Anaconda since we were teenagers. We always joked, man, we got to do a DVD extra of this, of course, back in the day. Anaconda is just one of those horror movies that clicks so many of the buttons for us about why we like cheesy, bad horror movies. It's somewhat scary, not terribly scary, but it's just got such a great dynamic plot movement where it just keeps going, keeps going. If you want a good horror movie, like get on a boat, go somewhere, make yourself go some, you're going A to B. That's the whole story. That's all you got to worry about. So it's one of those films that just like keeps moving, keeps pushing. And of course, the casting in this movie is so mind blowing. We'll, of course, dive into the villain, John Voight, because he is just such, he's just chewing up this movie. He's chewing up the scenery, everything. He's just like, it's a movie, it's, it's a transformation I've never imagined this guy, this particular actor to make. And so there's something like intrinsically hilarious and great about this performance he does. Now, I'm not going to lie. I do love me a good monster movie. You know, Godzilla movies, love them. War of the Gargantuas, all for it. Even horrible, horrible rubber suit monster movies count me in. So I was kind of stoked for this because, honestly, I had never watched this film prior to preparing for this show. I just saw Bad CGI Snake and and J-Lo and walked away. So now I've gone down this road, and we are going to as well. But before we do, it is time to take 1997's Anaconda and trailerize it. Before Benifer, before A-Rod, and before Benifer 2 Electric Boogaloo, Jenny from the block had to deal with a much bigger snake in 1997's Anaconda. She's Terry Flores, a documentary filmmaker looking to make it big by finding a lost tribe along the Amazon River. What she does is find a leathery snake fetishist named Cerrone. He's looking to strike a big and capture a giant snake worth millions, and he'll sacrifice anyone and everyone to do it. Watch as they battle the horrors delivered by the best CGI 1997 could buy and the worst accent John Voight could muster in this monster movie that makes asylum movies look epic. 
This anaconda don't want none unless you decide not to run, hun. Jennifer Lopez stars in Anaconda. Rated PG-13 for poaching greaseballs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect for, for Voight. Like, a poaching greaseball is exactly what he is. I, I think so. Well, between him and Mateo and a very, very brief appearance of Danny Trejo, we hardly knew him. Uh, but this actually has a, quite a good cast here. This movie stars Jennifer Amazing Lopez. Amazing cast. Right. Jennifer Lopez, John Voight, Ice Cube, Eric Stoltz, Jonathan Hyde, Owen Wilson, Kari Wurrer, and Vincent Castellanos. And, of course, the very short introduction of Danny Trejo. He didn't make it to the title card. He doesn't make it, but he has a very impactful opening scene to this movie. Uh, this, like The first scene of the movie, they go from a guy punching away to the SOS, trying to get a call in, trying to get some help. We get the POV of the snake is somewhere in the water outside. And he knows something's up. He tries to get to a higher level, and this snake breaks through the. You don't see it, but like you're getting, you're seeing all these little moments. You realize it's how big this thing is without seeing it. He breaks through the bottom of the boat ship. He climbs up to the top of the what is it, a flagpole or a mast? It's shaped and, like a and cross. It looks like a mast. Yeah, yeah. And he chooses gun to the head instead of being hit by the snake. That's how the first scene ends. It's such a... Now, like, now, is he choosing gun to the head because he doesn't want to be eaten by the snake, or is he choosing gun to the head because he doesn't want to hear John Voight's accent? <laughs> he doesn't want to hear Voight complain about how he missed his opportunity with the snake, either. <laughs> okay, but the funny thing is, there is an almost starring list for this film, and there are a ton of names for this. We're going to start with Terry, as played by JLo, and I'm going to run through some of these here, and I'm going to see how you feel about these. Apparently, actresses who turned down the role, Jillian Anderson and Juliana Margulies. I read about Anderson. I think she conflicted with X-Files, right? She just couldn't do it. And I don't know. So I keep thinking about like, what is the weight of the actor, right? When you think about what would Jillian Anderson bring to this? And I think she would have brought a lot more not necessarily a lot more seriousness because I don't think J-Lo plays this comedically whatsoever. She's pretty... She's dealing with like what's happening. She's actually acting. She's acting. Yeah, I don't think she's actually. I think she's pretty good in this movie. She doesn't really like have to do anything that's tremendously difficult, but she does have to negotiate this this guy who's basically slowly trying to take control of her boat, scene after scene. There's a little bit of power that slips away from her and slips away from her crew, and she's constantly trying to figure, okay, how do I? What's my best move here? And she's losing all the time, but she keeps thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, what would Julian Anderson have done? I don't know. I think she could have maybe brought that character to the forefront a little more. But the movie kind of uh, gives J-Lo a, a, at the forefront more power. And then at the end, she kind of comes back again. There's a kind of a dip in the middle where she she loses it to Cerrone for a while. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? I'm not quite sure about Julian Anderson. And Juliana Margulies, uh, you know, I I don't hate that idea, but there's actually a a list of actresses here who were under consideration, apparently. So I'm going to go through the list one by one. You say yay or nay, as in you could see them in the role. And this has nothing to do with how Jennifer Lopez played it. Right, just Just if they were good. Exactly. If you can see them fitting the role of Terry Flores. Jennifer Aniston. No. Kate Beckinsale. Mm, No. Nicole Kidman. No. 
That was that was a pretty darn I, quick. I just think no. She's almost too regal. I just don't think it would fit the role. Remember, uh, Flores is actually uh, fresh out of school. She's like trying to become a documentary filmmaker. This is her big break, so she has to have a bit of a baby face or like innocence to her. Like, uh, oh, Nicole Kidman is is ageless and timeless. <laughs> I agree, but it, I I still see her as sort of like a regal character most of the time. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just typecasting her. Julia Binoche. Oh, you'd have to remind me. Who is she? <laughs> so I'm going to assume that's a no. Yeah, then. I'll give her a no just for that, yeah. Kim Basinger. Uh, I can see that. Um, I don't know if she would have brought anything that elevates the film, though. And Sandra Bullock. Wow, okay. Keeping in mind that this is only a few years after, like, Fire on the Amazon. She and, would fit. And Demolition Man. Yeah, I think she would have fit in this film. She has that edge of, like, she can become really tough and serious when she wants. Yeah. Uh, okay, so in the role of Sarone, of course, as played by John Voight. Say, same thing here. Can I just check no to everybody right now? Because no one's going to be John Voight. There is one name on this list, <laughs> and I would absolutely pay money to watch him play Sarone. Uh, but first, Sean Connery. Oh, man. I, I'd love, I'm interested in that, but I, I still say no. Tommy Lee Jones. I can't see him diving to the depths of evil that uh, he needs to be for Sarone. <laughs> I mean, the last time we saw Tommy Lee Jones dive to the depths of evil, it was a really, really bad Two-Face. Oh, so. I, I listened to your review on that one, and <clears throat> yeah. I heart, wholeheartedly agree. He is just outclassed in that film. He has no business being there. He, you know what? The problem is he chose to play it crazy instead of playing it straight. He made a choice. He shouldn't have tried to go in the same lane as Jim Carrey. He should have tried to be the the uh, the opposition to Jim Carrey, but instead it's two guys acting crazy and one guy's way crazier. Yeah. His performance in that is, tell me you haven't watched a Batman movie or seen a Batman comic book or watched a Batman cartoon without telling me that you've ever seen, you know, you <laughs> haven't seen a Batman cartoon. John Malkovich. Oh, man. I mean, if, if you could get Malkovich to do this film, that'd be the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Michael Douglas. No. Harrison Ford. No. Mel Gibson. Well, now, now that we know more about him, maybe he would have fit. But maybe a touch more. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Liam Neeson. Um, I can see that, but I just don't know. The thing about the Voight performance is that it, it edges on comedy at times, right? So that depends what part about this film you like. If you like the seriousness of it, maybe you go with, you know, uh, Liam Neeson or with Malkovich. But if you enjoy... The comedy of the performance, which I think, whether intentional or otherwise, I think it's intentional, frankly. But it, I think it's so ripe with comedy. Like I laugh almost shot for shot sometimes in this movie, um, <laughs> of of Sarone, of of John Voight. So I would say no, based on that kind of thinking. Jack Nicholson. Funny, I just reviewed the fan where Jack Nicholson apparently passed on the Bobby uh, Robert De Niro role mm -hmm. of uh, of Gil and. I keep thinking about that. If you if you have a guy, an actor who's got bigger shoes than the role, you have bigger feet than the role's shoes. If you follow my metaphor, sometimes it overshadows the the character, and you're kind of looking at the performance, not the character. And so it would be better to watch somebody who you've never seen transform into something crazy, rather than see a guy you're used to seeing play crazy. And you want to know what he's going to do this time because sometimes he just does what you've seen in other films. So I don't think Jack would have fit because we would have just been watching Jack be silly Jack almost. Mm -hmm. Whereas Voight, we've never seen him act like this. So it's something about it is funny just because of that. Martin Sheen. Oh, man. I mean, the whole apocalypse now. So this movie has a lot of 
like parallels to Apocalypse Now, right? The descent into the heart of darkness. Do I see him uh, again? It's that whole thing of like how serious he's also a bit smaller, right? Mm. I liked that Sarone was a six foot what two? How big is John Voight? He seems like a big man. Yeah, man. he looks big. So Sheen, I don't know. I don't think he would quite fill the role. And here's the one that I would actually love to see: Jean Renault. Remind me what he, who he is. All you got to do is go watch Godzilla, the Matthew Broderick one. Oh, I've seen it, but so long ago. Which one is he? There, there and of course there was the Pink Panther remake that he did with Steve Martin. Like there, there is something about Jean Reno where he's able to pull off menacing, but he's able to pull off like that 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 subtle unintentional comedy. Like I love me a good Jean Reno performance, and I think knowing that there's a whole lot of camp in this. I, I would I wholeheartedly subscribe to the idea of Jean Renault in the role of Cerrone. We'd probably get a better accent. Yeah, well, yes, I think anyone could beat the accent. Oh, I see you're saying, yeah, okay, the guy from The Professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, let me think about that one. That's interesting. Um, he definitely would have pulled off the accent better or like the... He would have. Fe- he at least could have made him. I think more convincingly made it look like he comes from the the area, or at least from South America. But yeah, I haven't seen him do. Yeah, yeah, he's done a lot of comedy too, hasn't he? Yeah. But he always kind of isn't in comedy. Like he's kind of the dumb guy though when he does it. Not, right? No, no, he's he's more often than not he's the straight guy. Okay. You know, and let someone like a Steve Martin or a Matthew Broderick kind of take that lead right. as far as like the fun side goes. Jean Renault, I think, would have killed it in that role. In the role of Denise, is played by Kari Wurr. Apparently, Gillian mm. Anderson auditioned for that role. She was. She would have been too good of it. Like, Kari Wurr is a was a choice. I think. Because a lot of horror movies in the 90s, you, you want a little sexy lady in one of your roles. And Carrie was kind of at her peak at that point. She'd been in a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, she does have kind of a descent into madness as well. So do you need a, a better actor? Like, not hate to say that about Carrie, but Gillian Anderson is definitely an A-plus actress. Would she have been able to like pull off that descent a little better? Uh, probably. But again, here's the list oh. of, of actresses who we were go. considered. Annette Benning. I don't know. No. No. Too, too, uh, like, again, like Carrie's supposed to be younger, feels a little fresh out of school, a little green in terms of her work. She's done, she's obviously in the business, but none of them are like pros yet, right? Mm-hmm. Like established. So, Cameron Diaz. Yeah, I can see it. Keep in mind, this is 1997 Cameron Diaz. Yeah, I think your budget goes up. Uh, yeah, but she still's done what by then? She's done the mask yet? Uh, you know what? I don't. I I think she's done the mask by this point, but this is pre Charlie's Angels, though. And, and something think, about Mary is ninety eight. I I think so. So this is so this is before she really exploded. I mean, yes, she got a lot of attention for the mask, right. and I think it's probably why they uh, they considered her for this. Terry Hatcher. Oh, see, ask nineteen ninety or ninety six Rob, who was in love with Terry Hatcher in the in that <laughs> show, like, like Superman show. I used to love Terry Hatcher. Um, so I would have said yes. And she actually, her and Carrie Weir don't look totally dissimilar. Like they have it, it, some features that look alike. It's not, it's not a, a far stretch. Gwyneth Paltrow. Ugh. I don't, I think you don't need to go that big of a A-list actress for that role. Winona Ryder. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. Again, she kind of looks like Carrie. And then there's in the role of Warren Restridge. 
Oh, man, Westridge is so good. Apparently, F. Murray Abraham, the voice of Khonshu himself, turned down the role, but they were also considering Tim Curry. And this is one of the situations where I completely agree with you that if it was Tim Curry in that role, the feet are bigger than the shoes. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly I forget the actor's name now, sorry, who's Westridge? What's his name? Uh, that would be Jonathan Hyde. Jonathan Hyde, yeah. Jonathan Hyde is so, like, he plays, I think, this perfectly. He's a bit comical, like, comic-y in the sense that, like, line for line, his delivery is very, like, thought out. You know he's, he's going to go big or he's going to go small in this line, but um, he fits it so well. Like, by the end, you actually grow to love him, even though you hate him at the beginning. Like, there's something fun about his transformation, too. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the one that blew my mind. All right. Up to this point, there've been you know some some interesting considerations, and you sit there and go, okay, I could see or I might not see. The role of Danny is played by Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. Was originally offered to Chris Farley. <laughs> Chris Farley. He's in a boat down the river, Chris Farley, <laughs> and he couldn't do it because of freaking Beverly Hills Ninja. What? How do you go from Chris Farley to Ice Cube? Oh my gosh, I would love to see this movie with Chris Farley in it. And I love Ice Cube in this movie, but to think that Chris Farley playing that role, the funny part, the hardest part of the thing about that is, remember in this film, unlike a lot of horror movies, especially 90s, you've got a Latina lead, You've got the co-star is black, and they're the two survivors of this. Of the, well, the three survivors. There's he, two of the three survivors are of color. Mm-hmm. So, if you put in, uh, if you put in um, Chris Farley, are you more tempted to kill him? Are you because, or are you like, is he still going to be the hero? Can a can that actor be the hero? It it just tells me like, and when you take a look at some of the the actors that they're looking at for these roles, I, I think you're right. I think comedy was was the intention yeah, there's, on there's a this. Thought. Yeah, you're right. They were trying to find that comedy. Where is it going to come from? Yeah, which which makes all of a sudden some of the more serious performances. Did they understand the assignment? Yeah, or did they even tell them like? I love this idea that the director was like, no, you're really serious. This is really important. But then to the other actor being like, yeah, just go crazy. <laughs> I love the fact that you brought up the director. This movie is directed by Luis Losa. Mm-hmm. This would be the last North American <laughs> theatrical release that he would ever direct. He also directed Sniper, uh, Fire on the Amazon, and The Specialist. In 2005, he did direct a movie called The Feast of the Goat that never saw a theatrical release here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this was his North American theatrical swan song. It's too bad. You Look at the money it made, though, based on its budget. This movie did really well. I wonder, though, how much of that budget is a combination of J-Lo and her star starting to rise or the fact that people are going, you, you got to watch this movie. You, you, you're not going to believe freaking John Void in this. <laughs> well, also remember, the snake is CGI in 97 and animatronic. It's yeah. both. And the animatronic costs a fortune to make. This is a massive robot snake that almost killed J-Lo and Ice Cube at one point. <laughs> we, we came so close. Yeah. We came so close. Uh, unfortunately, this film was highly panned. Mm-hmm. At the Razzies that year, this was nominated for Worst Picture. It lost to The Postman. John Voight was nominated for Worst Actor. He lost to Kevin Costner in The oh, Postman. Oh, come on. <laughs> 
For Worst Screen Couple, John Voight and the Anaconda were nominated. They lost to Dennis Rodman and Jean-Claude Van Damme in Double Team. Wait, J-Lo and Eric Stoltz didn't make that category? Because no. that's another bad couple. <laughs> Luis Losa was uh, was nominated for Worst Director. He lost to Kevin Costner for The Postman, oh. which I'm starting to think that Anaconda needed to send a thank you note to Kevin Costner for really messing up. <laughs> and, of course, the film was nominated for Worst Screenplay and lost to The Postman. I feel like I'm repeating myself here but it doesn't end there Mm. at the stinkers bad movie awards that year this film was given a dishonorable mention for worst film the winner that year was batman and robin well same year all right right back to that john voight won the stinkers bad movie awards for worst supporting actor and won for most annoying fake accent (laughs) now At the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, this film was nominated for Worst Film. Mm. It lost to Spawn. Oh, Spawn. Had some bad CGI in Spawn. Remember the devil? Oh. (laughs) It's a video game. Spawn had potential. Yeah, the the comic and the MTV cartoon were amazing. Oh, God, the HBO animated series? I love that one. Oh, it was HBO? Wasn't wasn't it aired on MTV? It was HBO. HBO. I I remember because I had the VHS tape and every time I put it on, it was great. But interestingly enough, at the Saturn Awards that year, Jayla was nominated for Best Actress. She, uh, She lost to Jodie Foster in Contact. And it was nominated for Best Horror Film. It lost to The Devil's Advocate. Devil's Advocate? Is that the that, that's the that, no, no, that's the Keanu Reeves and oh, Al Pacino. Right. Yep. Yep. I remember how it ends. Now, <laughs> also, at the 2016 All Deaf Awards. 2016? Yes. Ice Cube was given an award for Best Black Survivor in a Horror Film. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Love it. But you mentioned money, and this this movie made bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film had a budget of $45 million and had a domestic gross of $65 million and a worldwide gross of $136 million. Spent two weeks at number one. That's because it debuted on the April 11th, 1997 weekend. Also debuting that weekend were Gross Point Blank. Which debuted at number four. Uh, This movie knocked out Liar Liar, which was sitting at number one. Um, But the critics, though. Yeah, critics didn't like it. The reason why we're here. Over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 37. And then at Rotten Tomatoes, it has a tomatometer of 40% and an audience score of 24. That perplexes me because Anaconda also has a cult following people Mm -hmm. love to make fun of it and go on youtube people have sampled it they've made jokes about it but like there is a following of people who really like this movie i'm starting to think (laughs) i'm starting to think that this film is the john scott of horror movies in that it gets to the all-star game but the critics really really don't like it and the audience is in there going what the hell are we doing here but (laughs) let's figure out why this film is actually good Ratings be damned here. We're going to start with Jennifer Lopez, of course, who plays Terry Flores. How was how was J-Lo in this for you? I think she's fine. People, I, 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 there's only her third big movie, I believe, at this point in her career. <clears throat> and, I mean, she, she isn't asked to do a lot, but she's asked to be stoic, uh, somewhat flirtatious here and there. She has to do it fake. She has to put it on once, but she's trying to, like, fake seduce uh, Cerrone. And then she has to survive and then like run on her feet and, you know, outwit him to a certain degree. So I think it's really interesting because she's also the character in 
somewhat in power. Like at the very beginning of the movie, uh, Matteo calls her chef because she's the she's the running she's the director of the film. So there's this interesting power dynamic that she has that Sarone is slowly trying to pull away from her. And I find like she has to negotiate that. And her and Cube are kind of always on the side trying to figure out, okay, what do we do next? I never found her hard to believe or out of place. Um, and I thought I thought she's fine. Like I don't really have any problems with her performance in this movie at all. I think she's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. You know, obviously when people think of J-Lo, the, the first thing that's going to come to mind is Gigli. Right, it's going. It's it's bound to oh, happen. Always bad films. <laughs> well, just films. Period. Right. Like you, you, you think J Lo. The first thing you're going to think, you know, maybe Made in Manhattan, mm-hmm. but but Gigli will be the first one, and then Jersey Girl will probably be the second one after that. But in this, I a I wasn't expecting her to be in a role like this. Right. She to me, she screams rom com. Right. Right. That that seems to be her strength. Here I was actually surprised by how you know how good she actually was in this. I will say though, and this is probably the writing per se, in that here's someone who's made it to the point where she's directing her own movie and brave enough to go down the Amazon mm-hmm. River to find this tribe. And that confidence seems to go away throughout. Yes. Like wait, the, it does come back here and there. Um, but also, for the record, this film is over a quarter of a century years old. So if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you guys. Oh, yeah. Spoiler. Right. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. Straight spoilers all through this show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things where she's not the one I expect to pull the seduction attempt on Sarone. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if, if Denise is dead by this point or not. Or she's shattered mentally. I agree. And I think that's actually, to me, I thought that was a strength because I was like, oh, J-Lo's going to have to do it now. Like, mm-hmm. because uh, Carrie Werher's character, her my mind at this point is shattered from watching her boyfriend get eaten by an anaconda. And so she, it's up to J-Lo to sort of try this thing. Plus, she's already caught Sarone a few times now leering at her with this look on his face. Oh, he's leering at everybody at this point. But there's two scenes specifically where they just shoot him staring at her for like an obscenely long time just with this, this, you have to see this grimace to understand why it's so funny to me. But like he's, it's like a smile on Ronald McDonald turned completely upside down and, and then like a sharp edge in his teeth, his upper teeth showing and he's squinting his eyes at her with his head slightly cocked back and he's just leering at her whenever she does anything like just trying to tie her hair back and she looks up and there's this guy just eyeballing her from a distance and not breaking eye contact, just continuing to leer the whole time. So, yeah, she has to like, she knows, okay, I think he's attracted to me. Let's see if I can use it to my advantage. Um, uh, yeah, I think you're right. You're seeing her confidence dip, but Sarone is playing checkers here, not, well, or chess, not checkers. He keeps cornering her into problems where she like doesn't really have a choice, but to kind of follow along with what he's putting in front of her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at first, of course, you know, here's a guy who seemingly knows the, uh, the Amazon at this yeah. point, you know, but to the same time, why would she trust anyone Ex, you know, aside from Dr. Kale, right, who she knows, who clearly she's had a romantic relationship with in the past, she knows him, she knows that he knows the river, right? Like, why would you trust anybody else, especially some greasy, you know, old man ponytail that's stuck on a branch? Well, Kale's knocked out at this point, remember? So he's, she can't consult him at this oh, point. Oh, no, no, Kale was still, was still conscious when they picked Sarone up. Yes, when they picked him up. But, yeah, but he's gone. I think in the next scene or two scenes later, he's he's KO'd for most of the movie. By the way, did you not catch the subtext that maybe Doctor Kale is J Lo's old professor? 
I, I, I never thought old professor kind of thing. I mean, I obviously the, the, there's zero question that there's a past, a romantic yeah. past. The professor angle, I never really suspected, but now that you say I it, think it, I think it might be there. Like I'm a little creeped out by it the more I thought about it. Yeah, he's like he hires her to do her first film mm-hmm. and they had some sort of romantic relationship she came out of school obviously anthropology was probably something she studied because what she's doing and he's the teacher it just I, it just occurred to me like oh this is this could be a creepy situation <laughs> right <laughs> but i mean surprisingly like if, if you're going there expecting jenny from the block don't mm-hmm. no this that that's not what you're going to get you're not going to get glamorous no j-lo and i think that's a strength to her performance in this yeah she puts in a serious performance mm-hmm. she's not doing what john Voight's doing which is probably where the disconnect <laughs> is at this point but let's move on to ice cube who plays danny rich mm-hmm. how was he for you so it's funny about danny's that he doesn't really emerge as an interesting character until more than halfway through the film but at the beginning he's just sort of playing ice cube playing ice cube He's just a guy, and he's a cameraman, uh, and he's there to shoot the doc. Uh, and besides doing his kind of bravado thing, he's not doing much. He's supporting her, though. The first scene, the first line he says in the movie is actually one of his songs, which I think is hilarious. It's like a plug for his own album. But then he's there to support his friend, uh, Flores, who has hired him on in her first directorial role. So I love how that bond was actually immediately cemented and that their relationship was platonic and they're friends and they're supporting each other because by the end, that's going to be really important. You know what's funny? It, it, not necessarily the relationship between Danny and Terry. That's not what sold it for me. It's the relationship between him and and Warren. Oh, Westridge, yeah. Because at first they're they're very adversarial in mm-hmm. that, you know, he's trying to do his golfing kind of thing <laughs> and while well, Ice Cube is listening to rap Listen and to then, Mac 10. Exactly. But then there's, you know, after they they think they've caught Cerrone, uh and, you know, Warren teaches him how to drive the boat and you yeah. see you see them actually finally finding that level of communication where they're able to connect and the two of them all of a sudden become uh, like you understand that relationship. Yeah. They're brought together by tragedy, or at least by the situation that they're they're going through. I love how those two got together yeah. as, as far as being able to um, connect. Yeah, and it speaks to Warren's transformation in the film. Like he, you hate him off the get go. You hate him immediately, and then by the end, yeah, he's buddying up with Cube, and they're actually bonding over LA traffic and just like the lifestyle they want to get out of that rain, the rainforest, and just get back to you know where they're from. And they just they both get it, and they're both just like happy to be there. And now they've you know there is this feeling of like oh I think we've survived this, but of course they haven't. But uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> spoiler, uh, Westridge doesn't make it. But um, but yeah, I agree. It's one of those moments in the film. I think that this is why I'm a little blown away by the screenplay being so panned because I actually think the screenplay. I like movies where there's a destination. Like mm-hmm. uh, like there's a lot of examples of this kind of film. And some people think that's too simple. Oh, they're on a boat and they're going A to B. It's like, yeah, but it's about the adventure on the way and and how character development occurs throughout that. And this is one of those moments in the film where you actually saw some transformation in both characters. I mean, you you could easily argue like the, you know, a to B on the river on a boat. I mean, that's Apocalypse Now, like you said. Yeah. That's Jungle Cruise. And I actually enjoyed Jungle Cruise. Like, <laughs> you know, pan it for what you will. I actually enjoyed it. It was a fun ride. Um, and this, as far as the the actual plot goes, that that's not a problem with this. They're trying to find this tribe, and then the, at that point, they're just trying to get out of mm-hmm. there because, like, storyline and plot-wise... 
that and all the beats that go along with it that wasn't the problem mm-hmm. hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. The problem, however, might have been Cerrone <laughs> as played by John Voight. And I, I need to say this before I, I hand it over to you here. Uh, dear John Voight, Inigo Montoya called. You stole his accent. Prepare to die. But how was John Voight as Paul Cerrone for you? This is what makes or breaks your experience of this film. If you are on board for the lunacy of John Voight in this movie... It's amazing because like I was saying, shot almost every time they shoot the camera, they point at him and shoot the camera. I start laughing because there's a bunch of decisions John Voight makes about this character. One, you're going to realize or know immediately he's not just bad, but evil, like evil. Like this guy is not good. They should not pick up this hitchhiker. And you should, you know that almost immediately, like even before he gets on the boat, because the moment he does get on the boat, he literally leaps at the guy like a tiger. <laughs> like the way he, he, he jumps on the boat and he rolls, you think he's trying to kill the guy. He, even his eyes light up like a maniac. So you know, okay, this guy's bad. So that's the first thing he decides is like, you're, this is a vaudevillian villain over the top. Every line he says is like a one-liner 
uh, he he has a nickname for uh, for Carrie Werher right away. He calls him calls her Baby Bird every time he refers to her. So you can tell he's kind of slimy. He's got the slick back hair, but it the thing about him is that. The accent is so bad, but he's it's a face. On his face, he's got a fake scar on one side of his face. And then he leers all the time and he speaks through his teeth a lot. Like he kind of like, you know, it's like this weird choice of how he enunciates things. And because of that, he's grimacing and showing his teeth all the time and squinting. And, and then when he does smile, it's like the evilest smile. So like, it's funny because it's so ridiculous. And it's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Batman and Robin funny. It's like a different, it's like a, it's like that times 10. I mean, the thing with, with, you know, Schwarzenegger's Mr. Freeze, right? Is it's just bad pun after bad pun yeah. after bad pun. And it plays on almost all these Schwarzenegger tropes, mm-hmm. if you will, right? Like literally, like Schwarzenegger was memes before memes actually existed. Yeah, yeah. But the thing with, with John Voight, I mean, A, the fact that that accent kind of goes in and out, especially mm-hmm. near the beginning, like he was trying to figure out the accent as yeah. the movie went along. But... There are some actors in here who are trying to do a serious horror movie, <laughs> and he's not one of them. No, he. That's a, that's a really interesting point because I wonder how they felt about it in a way because he's there to chew the scenery. He's there to like he is peacocking all these actors in every scene, in a way that they're like I I don't know what I would do either if I was an actor like I came to, you know if you came like like J Lo did with okay I'm gonna play this character in this way pretty serious. But then this guy, every scene he's in is so crazy over the top that it it becomes a movie about the contrast between him and the rest of the film. And that's what makes him a, he's a bigger villain than the snake, right? Like the snake doesn't even matter really compared to this guy. We are way more interested in he's going to do than what the snake's going to do. And so, yeah, it creates a weird dynamic, but I find it comical, but at the same time entertaining because the rest of the movie keeps me on the edge of like, okay, but now what's going to happen? And it's almost like it's on purpose that the movie itself is trying to move along seriously, but he's there to put on a different kind of show for you. Again, it's one of those things where you take a look at some of those potential casting choices, right? If Chris Farley's in this movie, John Voight is the template for the way direction is supposed to go. Right. But there's a lot of serious performances. Like, uh, again, it's one of those things where you have, you know, you've got Jim Carrey in in, in Batman Forever, and that's, you know, that's a choice, mm-hmm. right? But it kind of worked. It was it was a very yeah. Frank Gorshin-esque Riddler. And then you've got Tommy Lee Jones making a definitely different choice than, sh- than what should have been done. Right. Um, you needed that balance, right? But here, right, while there are some, there is some levity in it, thanks yeah. to Owen Wilson and Carwer, um, and and the the relationship between Ice Cube mm-hmm. and and West Jonathan Hyde, yeah. exactly. Uh, this is so over the top, and mm-hmm. you you have to almost go into it expecting it. And I can see this being one of those films where you walk into it, you're like, oh, it's a big snake movie, we're gonna be fine, and then you watch this performance and go, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> and then you go back into the film. With the uh, with the mindset that this is camp mm-hmm. and everyone else is playing straight person to to John Voight, yeah, and then you can appreciate it a little bit more as the the unintentional camp that it is. Yeah, this John Voight produces so many one liners in this movie that everyone I know from my teenage years that knows the movie, we just we say them to each other now 
out of secondhand nature. Like, 10 minutes, people. 10 minutes. <laughs> Doesn't matter what we're doing, it's going to be 10 minutes. Only because, yeah, he, and he keeps coming back with these, these lines about like, you know, and, and let's think about the character for a second. He's supposed to be, a, um, per, he's from Paraguay. He joined the monastery uh, to become a, uh, uh, not a monk, but a priest. He, he, it failed. He doesn't fail out of that. As he reminds us, he didn't fail out of the priesthood, but he had to go see the world. He ends up on the jungle <laughs> and they say, what do you do in the jungle? Or what do you do in the river? And he's like, I catch snakes for collectors. And they're like, you're a poacher. And he's like, poaching is illegal. <laughs> but he doesn't say yes I'm a poacher or not I'm a poacher he's definitely a poacher but again he keeps trade like uh, what's the word he's showing everybody what he is and yeah. then sort of but then not admitting to it well when he's not showing us the music score is definitely telling oh us exactly because that, that's so like could could you signal anything like you might as well just put flashing font up saying he's the bad guy there's a scene the very first scene you see J-Lo she's actually working on a computer in the hotel and they keep cutting to something outside and playing the snakes theme, the uh, the sound, and it's and it's, and they show movement. It turns out to just be Eric Stoltz coming to the door. It was such a weird moment of like, why are you building suspense now? Like we're in, we just had a guy commit suicide in the first scene. We don't need to go back into that already, do we? And so there is some ham-fisted music uh, in this movie for sure. <laughs> Which you're starting your film with doom scrolling if you will right off the bat and then you're killing off Danny Trejo and then you're like all right now let's get to the film We're, we we've set the stage enough like yeah. that if that they're they're not being subtle no this, this film <laughs> like John Voight's accent is subtle like a hammer mm-hmm. um but let's talk about Eric Stoltz because this mm-hmm. is an interesting performance because I'm used to him from like killing Zoe and Pulp Fiction this is a much different performance from him how is he for you so he he comes off as this pompous guy but he's at least self-aware which I enjoy about him because he he does come off as like the shiny uh, you know professor but he's there in his like Jacques Cousteau costume which I think actually Ice Cube even says you look like a low budget Jacques Cousteau and he immediately picks up something with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and starts joking in French and I was like okay so this guy kind of gets what he is and he's he's aware of it and funny the creepy part is that he might be her old professor. But then what I loved about this is like the time, you know, he steps in uh, early on to kind of cut Sarone down. Sarone is trying to tell them a story about uh, um, the Shiri Shama, the people of the mist. And he immediately identifies like, you're just talking like that could have been this other tribe. And, you know, Sarone's trying to play power position with him. And he's like, I, I had snakes. <laughs> I know. That's his other thing. He hunts snakes. So he knows things is one of his lines. And Stoltz comes right back and he's like, I locate tribes for a living. I'm very good at that. So he shuts him down and immediately sees Cerrone pissed off. And so this power dynamic goes into play. And just when you think, okay, so Eric Stoltz is what, the white knight of this movie? What's going to happen? Nope. Next scene, he is out. He gets knocked out and he doesn't come back for a long time in this film. Yeah, he's lucky he gets to sleep through the whole damn thing. <laughs> but is With a it pen in his neck, right? <laughs> Which okay, you know, like I mean, I've used a pen to rewind a cassette. Apparently, we can you know use a pen to rewind his death scene. But is this not the most Kenneth Branagh performance that Eric Stoltz could have given? Yeah, I get. I know what you mean. Like he's. I, I, you think he's playing a type that you've seen before? Well, it just felt very Kenneth Branagh. And I, and I flash back to when Kenneth Branagh was in the Harry Potter series. You know, he comes in and he's supposed to be this, you know, like, you know, pro- you know professor of the dark arts, but really he doesn't know Jack. 
It's, you know, it's one of those kind of performances. Mm-hmm. And I actually really kind of like it out of Eric Stoltz. Again, a, a bit of a left turn from what I'm used to from him. Yeah. But, oh my goodness, like... When he's not asleep, he's actually very good. And I do love that power dynamic. And I love the fact that we never actually see how that little bug got into his mm-hmm. his rebreather. We do find out how, though. Oh, yeah, very it, easily. It was definitely Zerone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there, there's zero question about that. <laughs> he admits to it, yeah. But there's even this thing when Cerrone gets on the boat, like when they pick him up from the, from the wreck, and he's playing eye tag with Mateo and Dr. Kale, and that actually gives you cause to wonder what Dr. Kale's actual motive is in all of this. You know, I never caught that because I was about to say the eye tag with Mateo is, again, so blatant. that Subtle like Hammer. If you didn't catch bad guy eyeing the guy who's driving your boat, right? Like that, It's one of those moments in the movie where you laugh because you're like, he's telling you he knows the boat driver. Like, come on. I never thought he was looking at Dr. Kale. So the fact that you got, you thought for a second, maybe he's looking at Dr. Kale I never, I never cast suspicion on Kale, so that's interesting. I, I, I didn't have that read. I mean, it's almost like Sarone gets on the boat and he's sizing up who's on his who's team and who's not, mm-hmm. right? Who does he have to take out in order to be able to pull this off? Because, of course, he and Mateo are in cahoots the, yeah. the entire time. But, you know, I like that because you're right. He's identifying Stoltz as the heavy... And it turns out he's not going to be, well, or even if he is, he's not going to be the downfall of the foil of, of Cerrone. So it's interesting, again, and, and maybe we're reading this through a late uh, 2023 uh, lens of cultural identity, but it's nice to see that the white guy was not the hero, really. And it was the Latina Latino girl and uh, woman and uh, the black man who ended up being the main stars. Because in the 90s, like that wasn't happening. Yes, but it could have also been Gillian Anderson and Chris Farley. <laughs> right. <laughs> try, try to picture that now. Just just have that image of Gillian Anderson and Chris Farley surviving freaking John Voight. Yeah, that is blowing my mind the more I think about that. <laughs> uh, let's move on to Jonathan Hyde, who, of course, played Warren Westridge. You, and you liked him a lot in this. I do. He's so funny. His first scene, he walks out and he's yelling at the, at the boat boy with his three boxes of wine that he's bringing. He's... <laughs> And chewing him out for dropping the box, he's immediately an asshole. You're you're coded to hate him immediately. British accent, dressed up like he's got a like what is it cravat around it? Oh, he's, he's got the cravat yeah. on his neck. Um, yeah, you're you're immediately told you're gonna hate this guy, and he's so a funny. He's really like he's the actor uh, Jonathan Hyde is loving this role. Like he's totally diving into the assholeness of this character, and. Um, yeah, you slowly, you, know, you see him transform in front of the camera actually at one point too, which is also really fun to see because you hate him, you hate him. All of a sudden they turn the camera on, he's the narrator and he all of a sudden has this like, like, you know, air of authority and he, he sort of calms down and becomes like the, what you're used to seeing in like old school documentary and you realize, oh yeah, he's just an actor. Like he's just putting all that on. And then of course you see him unravel as, um, as Cerrone takes over the, the boat and there's one point where Cerrone just slaps the out of him in front of everybody and he and he has to bite the bullet he has to bite his tongue here knowing he's a outclassed physically but also he has to do it because everyone's safety is is uh is at risk here so he bites his tongue and he does get his shot in later with Cerrone where he gets to club him over the head with the golf club um and so you see and that's again where his transformation occurs again where he starts like okay I'm part of the team I'm helping them him and Cube start to bond. He's he becomes the boat driver, and 
he actually goes and starts helping. Like uh, when they get in that situation where the boat gets stuck, he, instead of putting up a fight, like, oh, I don't do things like that. He's actually, all right, I'll go there. You go there. We'll, we'll work together on this. So you learn to love this guy by the end of the film, which is so funny. And then his death is one of the best kills in the movie. Which we could have had Tim Curry. But yeah. but but I'm I'm happy we didn't. Yeah, I think know? Tim Curry would have been too big, almost like distractingly. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know. When you have a great cast, it's hard to know because this cast I think is amazing. If you throw in someone like that, though, does he? Is it a balance? You know, cast is a balance. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. does that on balance things? I don't know. Tim Curry's pretty great. Tim Curry steals the scene every any movie that he is in. But I love the fact that you bring up the fact that he teaches Ice Cube how to drive the boat. Now, dear listeners, if you have not watched this movie, there is a scene. Where Ice Cube beaches the boat. Yeah. Yeah. And then they eventually, like after everything is done and they get the boat off the rock, watch very carefully at the waterfall. It's moving upwards. So do you know where it was shot? Did you read about this? No. So they shot everything on the Amazon Mm -hmm. except for the end climax. They had to go to the planetarium in L.A.? And I, the, I do remember seeing that location listed, but yes. Yeah, so it's all just a pool. Yeah. It's all fake, right? And you can kind of tell by the like the light the light of it is is different than the light in the rest of the movie in a way. It, it, you can tell it looks like brighter. It definitely looks like a set when you get to that that scene. But the fact that they I guess they forgot to shoot the boat getting off the rocks, so they just played the shot backwards and you can see the water going <laughs> up the waterfall. He also has to explain it with like a, it sounds like a, an RA take like where they had to lay some voice in. He says, "The the tree that just fell in the boat knocked it loose." I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out how that works but that's what happened uh we're talking anaconda logic now uh i'm going to put these two together because they are kind of a team mm-hmm. owen wilson is gary dixon and kari were as denise Kahlberg. how were they for you i mean of course they break the the cardinal horror movie rule of if you go into the forest to have sex you die <laughs> you're gonna get killed yeah yeah and the best part of that scene to me is that they go out they start getting romantic and then we think it's the anaconda because we just saw the anaconda kill a stuffed panther a couple scenes before this so we're like waiting for another anaconda anaconda attack at this point but instead something else comes running at them you can't see what it is Cerrone shoots it he he happens to pop out of the woods with his rifle and shoots it wild boar (laughs) what does he say attacks with his tusks gores with his tusks goes for the eyes it's like, do wild boars? And I looked this up for years because, like, wild boars are like, is this really? How would they go for your eye? Do they jump off things at you? I looked it up. Wild boars jump at their prey. They they actually lunge at things with their, I guess, with their tusks. I don't know how they do that, but I've seen it on video. They lunge at things. This clearly feels like a script that was written by someone who, like, got a National Geographic magazine and found some interesting facts <laughs> about snakes and wild boars and said, we, we put it in the script. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Make him sound like Inigo Montoya. It's all good. So, but, so but, sorry, back to Carrie. So Carrie, where his character has to descend into madness when we see Owen Wilson die. But So let's go back to Owen because the whole movie hinges on this moment where Owen Wilson goes from stoner sound guy on a documentary set to armed mercenary who's decided he wants to make a film about poaching snakes and he's hoping he's going to make a million dollars off it. Somehow Cerrone convinces him in two scenes with very little dialogue, by the way, to do this convincing. And this guy switches from like smoking a dube, trying to fuck his hot girlfriend to let's go on snakes and try to make a million bucks. 
fucking hilarious. Like that is definitely the biggest problem I think plot wise in this film is Owen's change from what he was to what he becomes. It, it makes no sense. But once he makes the choice to actually help Sarone and poach and poaching the snake, there's the looks between him and mm-hmm. Denise where it's like, okay, he knows he's doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish they explored the relationship a bit more. Like he was trying, like if he was trying to, you know, set them up for a good life together and that's why they're working on the Amazon and this, then that would make more sense as to why he decided to jump for the money as far as poaching snakes goes. Yeah, I think me and Jamie talked about this in our podcast too when we reviewed Anaconda. We we talked about like, there's a scene where they're playing cards and I thought, you know, what if Owen Wilson has a gambling debt? What if he, like, give us a reason that all of a sudden the money intrigues him Mm -hmm. because at that point, he says in the movie that it's really survival that's intriguing him because he's saying like, hey, we don't know what we're, where we are. We're never going to get out of here alive. This guy knows how to get us out of here. Let's help him and then we'll get out of here alive. But like he's not computing a whole lot of problems. They're like, Sarone cannot be trusted. Sarone is bringing you to the snake's nest to use as human bait, by the way. He doesn't, nobody quite knows that yet, but that's what's happening here. And he just doesn't like... I just felt like his motivational change there didn't make any sense. You're right. If there's something about their relationship that speaks to why we need that money or, you know, um, maybe if she's being threatened by Mateo or she's being threatened by um, Sarone, like what if she was the eye candy that Sarone kept leering at? And so now Owen's kind of putting himself in between them as a way to help defend her in a way, even though it's the backwards logic way. But you know, you're right. Speaking to their relationship that he steps into between to be like, okay, but if, if I do this, he'll leave her alone. Yeah. You're something like that would have helped that make more sense. Now there are a lot of death by snakes in this film. Now, Denise, on the other hand, mm-hmm. clearly is proof that you can jump up and neck strangle someone from your ass mm-hmm. while tied up to like, what grappling man that's that, isn't that where it originated the grapple fighting style comes from brazil doesn't it that's where we are so paul Cerrone is able to with his hands tied behind a post slide jump and slide up the post bring his legs over her neck and come back down and strangle her to death with his with his legs while while confessing his sins to her <laughs> like that is literally an l2 square x move on a playstation game it was crazy like it comes out of nowhere it's wild and like again i love it because like what a thing like that they make john voight do again too right and i and i just think he just eats that type of up and it's it's actually pretty brutal death of all the deaths you're, you 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 want to see snakes eat things and squeeze things but now we've seen two people get crushed to death by the anaconda owen wilson and mateo so this is like a totally new death which i thought was pretty cool like in a horror movie you like to have that variety mm-hmm. and i think it's good that we finally confirm because that's really the first time Sarone murders somebody, right? He outright murder somebody. Because up to this point, he was basically having the snakes do his his bidding, if you yeah. will, or base. And at some at some point, you just have to sit there and say, "Is he sacrificing these people to the snake?" Because he he mm. seems to have a real you know real fetish for these snakes kind of thing. He's he's really into snakes, but <laughs> but at this point, this is the point where you realize that Sarone is going to do whatever it takes whoever he has to kill or sacrifice mm-hmm. to the snakes in order to be able to catch this snake like that that's the moment where Sarone goes full on villain yep. with a mario jump yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so out there like i i we when we covered rollerball on this show we made fun of the fact that there was a big giant cartoony boy in the film this film actually needed that sound yeah, effect yeah 
I, I love that he, it's like they add this new dimension to him that he's not only a snake hunter, but he, he's like an expert grapple fighter too or something. I'll, all I'm going to say is this. The next time you watch Anaconda, watch that scene. And as soon as he jumps up and gets the leg lock on her neck, just here, here we go. <laughs> like it's Mario Kart. Because that's the only explanation. He does plant his feet first. Like he puts them flat and then he pulls himself up but yeah the physics of it are pretty wild yeah that right now there's like bill nye is looking at this going this that's not happening he jumps to her shoulder like height right like yeah imagine she's five six or five three he's got to jump five feet high to get his legs around her neck from his ass <laughs> not happening like he's this is, this is a very powerful man uh vincent castellanos as mateo mm-hmm. this is one of those subtle performances right and i like the fact that it's subtle like i mean obviously we find out eventually that he's in cahoots with serone and this was their plan all along Mm -hmm. but i like the fact that it's he's sus but he's not obvious yeah he just seems slimy a little bit at first when you're like "Eh, it's an acceptable level of slime but yeah he's totally sus he only says about nine words in this whole thing which is also like a real economy of acting because he he only has to say like uh, like his biggest line in the movies when he pulls the wasp poisonous deadly from from <laughs> Kale's mouth, and then like one other line before he dies, and Mateo, yeah, he's totally just like making eyes with with John Voight here and there, like they're confirming they're like, and then the other scene I noticed where he's in the background doing some real subtle acting is when they're getting ready to. When they're trying to make a decision about which way down the river they're going to go. And Mateo's kind of pushing them like, hey, I'm just a driver. Which way do you want to go? But you can see in the background, he's kind of looking at Voight as Voight is doing his pitch. And 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 then, you know, J- this is at the point where now Kale is injured. So J-Lo says, this is the same route you wanted us to go yesterday. Uh, yesterday for different reasons. Um, and so you see like Mateo kind of glance at Saron when he does that. So, yeah, it's a real subtle performance. And when you, meet, when you see the actor, like he's actually a really legit actor and like, does not sound like Mateo whatsoever. So it's a real like put on to, to make this character. But at least it fits him, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like John Voight's character, I'm not quite sure if that's fitting anybody. But who is that man? <laughs> pretty much. But the funny thing is, if you make this movie today, you're swapping roles. If Vince Castellanos is on the on the mass shooting himself and Danny Trejo is playing Mateo. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's funny how Danny Trejo's star has kind of risen, even though he will take any movie out there. Yep. But he's kind of living his best life, and I kind of like that. Yeah. We need to talk about the snake. Yes. The snake. Um, so, like we said, part CGI, and the scenes that are CGI are like when Owen Wilson dies, he's wrapped up and crushed. When Mateo is wrapped up and crushed, and then... The other big one I can think of is Westridge, who jumps off the waterfall and the snake hangs on to a rope. Uh, sorry, not a rope, but like a, a tree trunk and dangles itself down like a rope so that it can come back up and catch him and then coil him up back to where it's hanging on. It's a pretty cool effect, but definitely by today's CGI standards, it's pretty rough. The other thing, though, is that half of this thing was animatronic. And they had to build this giant robot that they could control with like a keyboard, basically. And the story I heard, and I saw Ice Cube say this on an interview, was that this thing was thrashing around sometimes. It would mess up the whole set, like crush break things. It would go haywire. It had a lot of bugs. And there was a report that it almost hit J-Lo at one point and like seriously injured her and just narrowly missed. So apparently the uh, the actors are actually kind of afraid of this robot more so than like they're not performing fear. They're actually like kind of worried the snake's going to hit them and hurt them. 
all I can hear is Steven Spielberg talking about Jaws going, the shark didn't work. Like, I I get, I appreciate the 1997 CGI is not going to hold muster, right? There's a lot of, you know, CGI from that era and like... You, you want to see CGI that doesn't hold up, you go back and watch the original Lawnmower Man because that was so bad. But, I mean, it's not horrible. At the time, this was cutting it. Like, mm-hmm. this was pretty good. Like, this snake. They thought it was pretty good back then. So we have to keep that in mind that, like, where they were at, this looked good. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, ask, I ask you as the, the purveyor of all things Anaconda, right, what worked best? better for you the animatronic or the cgi you know it's funny you say it because the the animatronic works well for the scenes when it breaks through the window and you're looking at its face and it like opens up its mouth and it hisses and it feels very physical like you start to feel its size and like you can kind of it has like a haptic uh, like a texture to it that you kind of you feel like you could touch it and you would feel a snake and then but then there are other times where they where they use that Uh, Now, I I don't know when they kill the panther, if that's the animatronic or if that's just like some snake they got to wrap around a toy. There's those scenes where like the snake just is just a coil and it's not really doing anything. The CGI is like fun to watch, but it's and it has more character in a way, because if you think of the end scene when we've got J-Lo and Cube set up as bait and it comes down from the sky somehow, (laughs) (laughs) it definitely has more presence as like a deadly um, scary monster, but your eye can't help tell the two apart. Very, it te- like your eye tells it apart real easily. So it's really tricky sometimes to decide what you think about this thing. Again, maybe that's one of the reasons I love the movie because I'm watching Sarone as the villain more so than the snake. The snake's like a manifestation of evil, but he is the the real reason I'm watching it. Like the real evil that I want to see foiled. I don't really care if they kill the snake or not. If they get away from it, I'm just as happy as if they blow it up. But they do have to blow it up. I think the thing with the snake for me, and this, it's kind of Cloverfield rules, right? In that we did not see the monster of Cloverfield fully until the end of the film. And that added the mystique and yeah. the, the scariness to the Cloverfield monster. Snakes be all over the place. I mean, yeah. I, I get that we've thrown physics out the window from, from Saron's, like, you know, magical butt jump, but. I wish to, uh, uh, there's the scene where Owen Wilson and Denise are in the forest and you see that low camera slinking through and you're like, is this a snake? And that part works well. I wish they did that a bit more. And yes, they have the underwater camera that they're, they're shooting people like swimming kind of thing, but. And they, and they did at the beginning with the Panther uh, and they did it with uh, Treo's death too. So they actually do that POV quite a bit, but you're right. Not like, it's like a lot of monster films. The more you see it, the more you recognize it looks like a doll or it looks not real. We were talking about this with, uh, uh, do you remember the movie uh, uh, Dog Soldiers with those big werewolves? No, but now I'm fascinated. Oh, it's a good movie. (laughs) The werewolves are amazing looking, but they very rarely give you much to look at other than a couple quick glances. And when you finally reveal them, it's like pretty cool, but you do start to realize, oh, it's a costume. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, like obviously subtlety is out the window with this movie. Yes. But I mean, like we actually just talked about legend on this film, the 1985 Mm -hmm. film, and the differences between the US theatrical cut and the director's cut and how in the theatrical cut, you see darkness right away, right? With 
complete green eyes and green nails, the whole works, right? In the director's cut, you don't see darkness until like an hour plus into the film when we see darkness for the first time that Lily sees darkness. And it's like, okay, that there's the the mystique. There's the ominousness of it. But you're right. If Cerrone is the villain and the snake is just the tool of the villain, or at least the villain's MacGuffin, if you will, um, then I guess we don't need a subtle snake. Yeah, I wonder if it's a little bit of like, you know, we spent all this money on this snake. Show me the goddamn snake. <laughs> they probably spent a fortune on that animatronic snake and that CGI. I love that you brought that up. There is a documentary out there called the uh, uh, the Final Cut. It's basically a documentary about film editing. And again, Steven Spielberg talking about Jaws. Yeah, he has a quote in this where he was going back and forth with the with the editor of the film, and they were trying to you know, figure out how much of the shark to put in, right? And they would basically, like, sit there on the moviola as it's going by, and Spielberg would stop the moviola where he thinks it should stop, and the editor would stop. And in some cases, it was, you know, pretty much bang on. In other cases, it was a frame more or a frame less. And he was trying to get more shark in because, of course, they spent so much time on the boat and so much money on it. And the editor's like, no, no, no. If you put more in, it looks like, quote-unquote, a giant floating white turd. Is this Robert Murch, by the way? No, 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 no. It was, I can't even remember her name, but she was. Oh, right. Yeah. I've heard Murch in his book talk about this, I think. That's why I've heard this story before. Yeah. By the way, if you want to watch that documentary, and it's a fascinating documentary, you can actually find it on YouTube. Yeah. The Final Cut. It's a fa- if you're interested in film editing at all, highly recommend. Go watch that. And I say that as an editor. Mm-hmm. But it has come time. So, Rob. Who is your MVP of Anaconda? MVP, is it most valuable person? Is that yep. what, Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> I mean, other than the casting director, who probably deserves the MVP for putting this ensemble together. <laughs> <laughs> ensemble, he says, with quotation fingers. No, no. I mean, I think this cast is amazing. The more you look at these actors and where they've all gone to now, too, you're like, I can't believe like Owen Wilson's in this movie. Like, you know. So, I have to... This, again, hinges on how you enjoy this film. I enjoy Paul Cerrone's, I enjoy John Voight's performance in this. It's so ridiculous. He literally gets eaten by a snake, and they they cut to a shot from inside the snake as they're going over his head and swallowing him. He gets spit out two minutes later, all gross and slimy, and his face is half dissolved, and he winks at the camera. That's how he goes out in this movie. That's the end of Paul Cerrone is that moment. And that's exactly what he's doing this whole movie. It's a real eh? <laughs> kind of wink it constantly. And I, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, I don't know if it's a masterclass in comedy or what it is, but like how did he realize that his face looked so funny with those leers and sneers he keeps doing in the movie and that they would have enough weight to just, let's just cut to a shot of, John Voight sneering <laughs> and like it's fucking hilarious and and just these lines and like the way he lets his eyes like light up like a maniac at different points and just his lust for the snake is it's such a it's it's like here's the other thing I think about by the way we were talking about him and Mateo have a master plan what the f- was the master plan steal like why don't they just steal the boat why do they need the crew I guess because they do want to sacrifice it to the to the snake to help catch it is that why they need the crew to come with them all the way down? 
Like it's such a bizarre master plan. Like what what was the A to B to C here? But he does throw the monkey blood all over J-Lo and Ice Cube at the end because he wants to catch the snake. And he thinks he's going to catch it. This is his big plan is to catch it in a net. He's just going to catch this big snake in a net and it's going to be fine. This is the biggest snake since the Cretaceous period. And, um, but you know, it's just like he steals every scene. And like you said, the other actors don't maybe even realize what, like what he came in to do. But when I saw him, like even talking about it later as a, being interviewed, like John Voight, he, he was laughing about it as well. Like he knew I, my plan was to do this big vaudevillian villain and he felt the script call for that. And it's funny how no one else kind of maybe saw it that way, or at least once they got to the, I, I, it makes me wonder, did the director and the casting director and everybody realize this is where he was going to take Paul Cerrone? Yeah. And I think that's why those of us who love Anaconda talk about it as a cult classic because it's such a strange choice of a performance, but it seems it seems like it's worth the money alone. And then the, the rest of the movie is still pretty good. And that's kind of like why I like it. It's like I can still follow the plot and still enjoy the like boat ride to hell, but my MVP has got to be John Voight playing Paul Cerrone. I wonder if John Voight and Luis Losa, the director, were the only two in on the fact that this was a comedy. And basically the winks that he was giving to the camera were basically the winks that he was giving to the director. It's like, no, no, this is going to be the funny movie. Huh? <laughs> well, the story I heard, actually, he's interviewed and he tells about the wink. And he he said, I was in my, co- I was doing costume and makeup. And they were the only two. And I said a joke to him, like, what if I wink at the camera? And they were laughing their asses off. And he didn't tell anyone. He went out to do the scene and he winked. And those two guys are laughing off set, but no one else knew he was going to do it. And they decided to keep that cut. And I don't know how many times he gets puked out of the snake because it's CGI. So it's hard to tell. <laughs> but like, And then they cut to his face. And uh, I guess maybe there's other takes where he doesn't wink, but it's so funny that he winks and dies. I... I'm actually going to call an audible on my MVP because originally I had Ice Cube written down as my MVP. (laughs) But you've actually convinced me to change my choice, but not to John Voight. Okay. It's Jonathan Hyde, who of course plays Warren Westridge. And no, he doesn't make it to the end. But I love the fact that his character, A, enters the entire scene like Daphne Zuniga in Spaceballs, you know, with all of her her luggage. (laughs) But actually has a full and complete character arc yeah right like you see like you know snootiness and conflict and resolution and the denouement the fact that you know when he's finally dead like i i am really surprised at how good this like i know we talked about the fact that tim curry could have been in this role i'm glad he wasn't jonathan high was perfect in that role jonathan hyde's death is actually kind of a sacrifice he's kind of leading the snake away to save his friends by that point. So he's gone through the full character arc of being one thing to another. And it's not, it's not an overblown sacrifice. Like there, okay, there's a movie where I have to sit here and say, if we ever do Dante's peak on this film, I'm going to need a Snickers bar. When I describe the fact that when the grandmother jumps into the lava to push the boat, it is the most over the top (laughs) self-sacrifice in the history of cinema. This is actually pretty damn good. I feel like I got to go see it as a meme. Just like, I just want the cut of just that moment now just to see how it looks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. I like the movie a lot, but that scene needs to go. But Jonathan Hyde, I think, 
surprisingly, I'm going to say Jonathan Hyde was the better choice over a potential Tim Curry, and that's saying a lot. Rob, I'm going to let you take over the mic for a second here. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Running Scared podcast or Jogcast, and then where we can find it and where can we listen to it? Yeah, so the Running Scared podcast comes out usually every two weeks. We're, we're not the best at hitting the schedule, but we review horror and film and uh, thriller films. Um, we we uh, also create what we call Jogcast, their original, like, audio horror for jogging. So, I mean, a lot of the stories we make ourselves are, are, are stories about running, being chased by zombies or vampires or what have you. So we make those as original content and then the reviews are just our regular, our, our regular uh, pods. We also have a Patreon account where we do like a kind of a, a secondary pod, which is more or less just like some of the inside bits we probably didn't put in the first pod. Uh, but we've also done some exclusive content where we actually did a pod where we recast Anaconda and we, the two of us pitched our two ideas about who should be uh, if we were to do a new Anaconda. Or uh, actually, we were doing it as if it was Anaconda at the time. And who would you have recast instead? So this list is actually fascinating to me. I, I, he took it that way, sorry, and I did more of a modern version where I recast it as a musical with Ed Sheeran playing, uh, <laughs> playing Dr. Kale. And uh, I had Jack Black, I think, as, uh, as Paul Cerrone. And some other ones. So we definitely took two different uh, bends on that. And Anaconda just happens. It's where our pod started. And it's why we're still talking about it. And as we approach our episode 50, we're going to do go back and do Anaconda <laughs> one more time. I am trying to picture Anaconda as a musical right now. And I don't know whether I'm more fascinated or frightened by that. Rob, thank you so much for popping on the show. And to you, our listeners, you guys know the drill. If there is a film out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is so bad that there's no way in hell that we can find anything good to say about it hit us up on twitter at not that badcast on facebook at facebook.com slash not that badcast or over on our website at not that badcast.com let us know and we will watch it we will dissect it and we will find the good things to say because we're looking for those a grades and b movies until next time i'm jay he's rob remember go listen to running scared you guys are awesome for listening this is it's not that bad take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.